Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. I've not done this since I've been here. And I've not done this often as a pastor. Uh, maybe one time, or I can count on as many times on one hand. But I think we need a testimony this morning. So here's how this used to work. When I was growing up in the Church of God in Kentucky, we'd always have a testimony time in Sunday morning worship. And that would be a time not for people to show off or goof off or those people who only wanted to make a name for themselves to stand up, but those who actually had something happen in their life that they wanted to testify on behalf of God and give witness on behalf of God for working in their lives. And uh, I want to give an opportunity for a a couple of you, one of you, I know this puts everybody on the spot, but the Holy Spirit works even in unstructured ways. So, um, Does anybody have a testimony this morning? You can stand where you are. You don't have to come to the stage. I know this is an intimidating space. So, but if you speak, speak loud enough so we can hear. I see uh, a Loretta Thurston over there. Yes. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Loretta. For those of you at home that may not hear, this was Loretta Thurston. She said two years ago around Easter time, she was at one of the darkest moments of her life and close to suicide, and today she's here two years later. Praise God. Are you standing up top? No, I I, I just don't want to leave our balcony crew out. Thanks, Jerry. I got one in the back. One of our board members. You go, girl. Linda, what's up? Yeah.
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Praise the Lord. Well, that with those of you at home that didn't hear that, and some of you that might be hard of hearing, Linda, one of our board members, uh, had back surgery for a tumor that was growing in her lower back in 2011. <clears throat> Doctors did not give. A good prognosis for her recovery, but through tremendous uh, hand of God on her life, she is a living testimony of how God heals the body. So thank you for that testimony, Linda. One more. Mary? Well, you're so tall, I almost didn't see you. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Amen. Again, for those of you at home that may not have heard, Mary's son that lives in New Hampshire had been away from the Lord and um, ended up coming back to the Lord while she was there and uh, got baptized and wanted an answer to prayer because I know you'd been praying for, for many, many years. So L let, me, let me go here with you. This, it seems ironic or weird to go to this place called death. Uh, 
in the story of Jesus, and I know you kind of expect that, right? We, we look at Good Friday coming, in, coming along at Easter where, where we talk about the death of Christ, but the death of Christ has no substance without the resurrection. That's kind of what Sarah Lee said a moment ago. And the passage, passage that I've chosen today to uh, illuminate this death of Christ is actually not the typical passage you would preach on, uh, which we'll get to in a moment. And it's all about perspective. Okay, death isn't about perspective, but what I'm getting at today is sometimes we can be blind to the reality of truth, believing a lie, and, and miss out on some of the great graces and abundance that God has for us. And I want to talk about that today. And, and there's this illustration, and I, I've used illustrations about eye surgery and those kind of things before, but there's specifically... Uh, this one um, that I haven't read to you guys or talked to you about uh, by this, this quote, if you will, or this illustration from a, a guy by the name, he's actually a quantum physicist by the name of Arthur Zajok, Z-A-J-O-C. I'm assuming it's Zajok or Zajok. Zajok, I don't know. Um, in his book, Catching Light, he writes of what he describes as the entwined history of light and mind. Um, correctly described by one admirer as two ultimate metaphors of the human spirit. For our purposes, his initial chapter uh, is pretty helpful this morning. From both the animal and the human studies, we know that there are critical developmental windows in the first years of life Sensory and motor skills are formed during those times, and if this early opportunity is lost, uh, trying to play catch-up is hugely frustrating and, and mostly unsuccessful. So we know that in a child's development, or in a, even an animal, uh, puppy, kitten, any kind of animal development, that if they miss certain benchmarks, it's, um, I won't say it's impossible to catch up, but it really is debilitating for the rest of their lives. He goes on to write in his book uh, of studies which investigated recovery from congenital blindness, congenital blindness. Thanks to cornea transplants, people who had been blind from birth would suddenly have this functional use of their eyesight again, or just have functional use of their eyesight. Nevertheless, success was often rare. Even being able to see with perfect clarity, they said success was rare. Referring to one young boy, the world does not appear to the, patients, uh, to the patient as filled with gifts of intelligible light or color or shape upon awakening from surgery. They don't know what to make of the clear sight of things they've never seen in their whole lives. They don't know a triangle is a triangle, or yellow is yellow, or blue is blue. The light of day beckoned, but no light of mind replied within this boy's anxious open eyes after surgery. He quotes from a study by Dr. Moreau, who observed that while surgery gave the patient the power to see, the employment of this power, which as a whole constitutes the act of seeing, still has to be acquired from the beginning. It's like learning something new. He concludes, to give back sight to a congenitally blind person is more the work of an educator than of a surgeon. 
To which Shadrach writes, or adds, the sober truth remains that vision requires far more than a functioning physical organ. Without inner light, without a formative visual imagination, we are blind, he explains. That inner light, the light of the mind, must flow into and marry the light of nature to bring forth the world. So where am I going with this this morning? There are two guys. Well, let's assume the other one's a guy. There's one we have a name for. We know it's a male name in the Greek language. Walking on this road to Emmaus. Jesus has been crucified that Friday. It's now Sunday morning. They're heading back because Sunday is not the Sabbath for them. Saturday is the Sabbath for the Jewish people. Jesus has been in the grave since Friday. And they're walking home. They had been followers of Jesus. They're going back home to the city of Emmaus from Jerusalem. Some scholars believe it's about eight miles away. Some other scholars believe it's up to 18 miles away because we really don't know where Emmaus is. We just know they were heading to that location. But let's say it's eight miles. It's a brisk day walk. And they're heading back home, downcast, dejected, frustrated. And then something happens. But they're blind to see it. So let's pick up their story. Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 13. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking uh, to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, and what were they talking about? Let's, talk, let's pause for a second. What had just happened that weekend? It had been Passover. They were there for the celebration of Passover. But as followers of Jesus, they had also been there following him to see what was going to happen, see what he was going to do. Now, they weren't of the 12 disciples, but they were followers of Jesus. They may have been one of the 120 followers. We're not sure. But we do know that they were followers of Jesus. And they're walking home, and they're discussing as they walk along this path back to Emmaus, all that had happened. It's like, all right, let's, let's, let's go back to the beginning. How did this happen? What happened? And they're mulling this over. You ever do that when a tragic situation happens in your own life and you talk to people and you're like, can you believe this? I mean, I can't believe it. Can you believe it? No, I can't believe it. I mean, we thought it was going to be this way, but now it's this way. I thought it was going to be like this, but now it's like that. And so they're walking along and they're pondering and they're talking and discussing these things. And Jesus suddenly came and began walking with them. Don't know if he's hiding out behind a tree, what's going on. But see, they're so caught up in conversation, they don't even recognize what's going on around them. Do you see what's happening? And then Jesus shows up among them. And you think, oh my gosh, it's you, Jesus. Because they'd been following him, and they had become believers in him. You would think they would know him. But it says in verse 16, God kept them from recognizing him. Does that mean God blinded them? I read several different uh, sources this week. Some, people, some scholars believe that God had blinded them to the reality of Jesus or that due to their discouragement and their overwhelming sense of sorrow, they were blinded by just the sheer fact and reality of what had happened. So Jesus asks them this question. Hey, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? Because they must have been really intense in their conversation. 
And they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Some versions say dejected. Uh, some versions say utterly depressed. Then one of them, Cleopas, and that's the one name we have of these two, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem that hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. <laughs> you ever had something like that happen? Where uh, so-and-so died in the news. What? I didn't hear that. Where have you been? You've been under a rock somewhere. So Jesus had been a person of fame at this point in time in human history. He, is, he had risen to status among his followers as Messiah, but he had become infamous among his adversaries as somebody who threatened their way of life. Everybody in Jerusalem knew this Jesus guy. He had been tried before the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of the Jewish Council. He had been sent before Pilate, then Herod, and then Pilate again. And Pilate was wanting to release him because he couldn't see any wrong in Jesus. And so he stood him on the, on the portico there of his own palace saying, who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas, who was a known murderer of the day, or Jesus, which was custom during the Passover that Pilate, the governor, would release a prisoner to the Jewish people. And they started screaming out, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. This is the stuff that they're discussing Sadness is written all over their faces. Haven't you, wh where have you been? I mean, Jesus was crucified. You remember the guy they forced to carry his cross all the way through the streets of Jerusalem to the outer part of the city to a place called Golgotha, the skull, where they had him and two other thieves crucified? You, you, where were you? This was the only thing really that was going on of substance yeah, Passover was happening, but this was the theatrics in the city. Jesus says, because he said, where have you been? Don't you know what's been going on? And he says, what things? <laughs> I just love that. I mean, think about that. The one who it happened to. What are you talking What things have happened? Fill me in. <laughs> Do tell. Tell me what's going on. We know, we know that Jesus bore the marks at this point in time in his hands. Because we read that Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, said, unless I see the nail prints in his hands and the wound in his side, I will not believe. And then Jesus shows up in that room in Jerusalem and appears to them all, and he says, Thomas, come here. Put your finger here. Here, touch my side. And what does Thomas do? He falls at Jesus' feet and says, my Lord and my God. And you got to wonder, were Jesus' hands or wrist covered? I don't think so. I mean, in the garb of the day, they would have been open, but anyway, they were kept from even seeing the scars, I guess. The things that happened to Jesus, they proclaim, verse, uh, st still in verse 19, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said, he was a prophet who did wonderful or powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. Do you notice what they've missed? They had been following Jesus. They had believed he was the Messiah, but now their Messiah is dead. So now they revert back to, I guess he's not the Messiah. Have you ever said that? 
Well, I thought he was good. I mean, if he was good, he would have not allowed this thing to happen in my life. I guess he's not who I believed him to be. If he, if he really was, I mean, sure, he was a great teacher, a good prophet, but if he was truly God, wouldn't he know my situation? Wouldn't he deal with it the way I would expect him to? Wouldn't he answer my prayer the way I want him to? No, not necessarily, and I don't think we are ever guaranteed that in Scripture. It says he will answer, he hears our prayers, he will answer our prayers, but as I mentioned before, sometimes his answer to our prayers is no. So he goes on. But our leading priests and religious leaders, verse 20, handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the Messiah, there it is, who had come to rescue Israel. See, this all happened three days ago, and again, they're asking, where the heck were you? Then some women from our group, now here's the kicker, listen to this. Then some women from our group of his followers we're at his tomb early this morning. See, now they're on their way back to Emmaus from Jerusalem. Our, some of our women that were in our group, they went to his tomb this morning. And they came back with this amazing report. They said his body was missing. And that they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Is that not enough? Some of our men ran out to sea. We know it was Peter and John. They ran to the tomb. Peter got there faster. Some of our men ran out to sea. And sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Women's testimonies in that day and age weren't allowed within the court of law. Did you know that? Even if there were two of them, you had to have at least two witnesses, but women were not considered equal enough to have their testimonies put in the books. So you see these two followers of Jesus, yeah, two women were there, said they saw angels that told them Jesus was alive, and the two of our other disciples, two of the guys ran out there, and yeah, his body was gone. There's still disbelief, unbelief. Why? And then Jesus said to them, <laughs> Jesus walking with them says to them, you foolish people. Now that's not really harsh enough. All right? He's basically saying, are you really this stupid? <laughs> Listen, I'm not kidding. Jesus had a way with his disciples. He had a way with the religious leaders and his adversaries too. But he had a way with his disciples to where he could call them out with a stern rebuke. He called Peter Satan once. Did you know that? Yeah, it's in there. Have you ever called somebody Satan before? Yes, you have. <laughs> I actually have not said it, but I thought about it. All right, so let's continue. You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted? Now listen to this. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Isaiah 53. Wasn't that predicted? And it wasn't just Isaiah 53, but that's the one that really lays it out clearly. What Bible did Cleopas and the other disciple have to read? New Testament wasn't existent yet. It was 
the old scriptures, the old covenant scriptures, the Torah, the writings, the historical documents, the poetry. Isaiah being one of the major prophets. I mean, you guys rejected your prophets all the way throughout your history, and still you failed to believe them. They told you very plainly what was going to happen to the Messiah, but that that wasn't the end of the story. And yet you're walking away dejected. Where have you missed the point? How have you missed the point here? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I mean, he's, he's telling them, this was predicted, now let me show you. I'm starting with Moses. Moses, we believe, wrote all the first five books of the Bible. So he starts in Genesis, and then he continues all the way through the prophets. And he's saying, just in case you weren't clear. And so they've got an eight-mile walk, plenty of time to talk. How fast can you walk one mile? By this time, they were nearing Emmaus. It flashed forward. And the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay all night with us since it's getting late. So, they went on, uh, so he went home with them. I think he would have continued to walk on had they not asked. And that has eternal ramifications for us today. So he went home with them, and uh, as they sat down to eat, he took bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. And then suddenly, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. At that moment, he disappeared. Isn't that great? Jesus is like super cool. <laughs> I wish I could go a break, a broom, and I'm gone. You know, you, whatever, it's a poof of smoke. I mean, I just disappeared. I mean, can you put yourself, I try to put myself in these scenarios and sit and, ex, you know, in these environments in my mind's eye and think, okay, what must that have been like? If I could have just been a fly on the wall, would I have been like, whoa, this is cool? Or would I have messed with my britches or my robe or whatever? What would I have done? Well, at that moment, they recognized him, and at that moment, he disappeared. And then, verse 32, they said to each other, how stupid could we be? <laughs> that, that's my interpretation. Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? I mean, wasn't there a stirring in our hearts that we knew that what he was saying was true? Wasn't there something of substance there? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem at nightfall already. They couldn't contain it. They're on their way back to Jerusalem, another eight-mile, seven, eight-mile track back home. And they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them who said, the Lord has already risen. He appeared to Peter. So they left before they got the word when Peter and John got back. They were too discouraged to hear anything else and they were done. Here's a key point this morning and it's this. Joy, true joy is surprising. Or yes, it's surprising. True joy is surprising. I want to break this down really quickly, and I mean quickly this morning, and it's this. First thing is that 
Though Jesus had risen from the grave, these two were still living with visions of death. Do you ever do that? Though these two were walking along this road talking about death, the author of life was walking with them. Do you not find that ironic? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? No one comes to the Father except through him. They had heard Jesus and his teachings with their own ears. They knew that he was the word made flesh that dwelt among them. They knew that it was from him that all things came into being and that all things hold together in him. And here they are talking about death when true life was right beside them. Let me ask you this question this morning, and those of you at home that are listening this morning. Are you living with the residue of death on your life? You know what it's like. You're angry. You're bitter. You're resentful. Maybe you're wrestling with unforgiveness. Maybe there's a deep root of anger that needs to be extracted from your life. And I'm not talking about a holy, righteous anger. I'm talking about an anger that leads to hatred and death. Maybe, maybe you're struggling with the death that sin has on you, that hold that sin has on you, whether it's addiction or, or any number of things in your life. And addiction takes on many forms. You don't have to be addicted to some illicit drug, prescription drug, or alcohol. You can be addicted to uh, hearing the accolades of others. Do you know what I'm saying? You can be addicted to any number of things. The one thing in life we were created to be addicted to was God. He should be our sole addiction. But we like to replace God with other addictions. What does the residue of death smell like? Sometimes it smells sweet. Because the enemy is a great deceiver and a great confuser. And he likes to make us think that certain things can lead to life, but ultimately will lead to death. That's what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of any tree of the garden? Trying to get them confused. What did God really say that we should or should not do? Well, no, we can eat of all the trees except for this one tree. Oh, don't believe that, Hooey. God knows if you eat it, this tree... You'll know right from wrong, good from evil, and you'll be just like him. Well, it does look good to eat, and I would love to be like God. He's the guy I love. I adore him. To be more like him? You've heard me say this before, but think about that for a minute before we give them the boot and say how horrible they were. Put ourselves in the shoes. They don't know right from wrong. They've never experienced evil. The only concept they have is of good, and my guess is they couldn't even give you a definition of good at that point. They didn't know good or evil. All they lived with was perfect peace and unity with the Father. They walked with him in the cool of the day, face to face. 
But you and I live with the residue of death because it started there and we wrestle with the same things since the beginning of time. What is the fruit that you're forbidden to eat? You eat in the fruit of life or the fruit of death? With these two, though they knew the truth, there's something about knowing it and living it, isn't there? I've known a lot of people in life, some of them I went to school with, seminary with, who have fallen away from the faith that said, I can't believe all that I learned with a master's degree in theology or a Bible degree. A lot of our colleagues, Sarah Lee and mine, have fallen away from the faith and basically walked away from Christ. And though that may sound stunning, the the question is, there's a difference between an intellectual faith about something and a living knowledge of the Holy One. That's why our first part of our mission statement is to know Christ intimately. Not know him intellectually or mentally, but to know him intimately. Because there is no true life change or any knowledge worth any substance that doesn't change the heart. Okay? Second thing we know about these two is though they were surprised that Jesus suffered and died, they were shocked that their Messiah died, they should have been prepared for his glory. They should have said, all right, now it's getting good. First phase is over, waiting for the ding, ding, ding bell to TKO this thing. They knew this. They knew from the prophets in the Old Testament that the Messiah would reign victorious And set captives free. But that he would suffer and die. That he would be beaten and bruised. That by his wounds we would be healed. They knew that. But there's, again, do you ever put two and two together? Have you ever been in one of those situations where... <clears throat> you, know, you know this thing, you've read it, or you've seen it, but it doesn't make sense to you. You ever experienced that? And then at one point in time, you're like, oh, I get it now. Could be the punchline to a joke. A lot of dry jokes, you know, sometimes just fly over my head, and then about two days later, I'm driving, I'm like, oh, that was funny. Right? You ever do that? So similar situation, consider they knew it, they read it, they'd studied it as Jewish males, but they weren't putting two and two together because they had allowed the emotional factors of their own experience to override the sensibility of the truth that was standing right in front of them. Now, emotions and feelings are there to accentuate our experiences, but they cannot be the driving force of truth. I want you to understand what I'm saying here. Do you get this? I've seen over-emotional people that are driven by emotion and completely lose their minds. Yes? Okay, I have lost you guys. Those of you at home, I can't hear you. Say amen to your screen. Put your hand on the screen. Sorry. They were there, they knew the truth, 
but it had not set them free yet because their eyes were blind to the truth. They couldn't see the glory of God beside them. And you say, well, it's because God blocked them from seeing it. Yeah. But do you think if they were open and willing to see it, they might have seen it? See, I think they would have been. I think God's oftentimes, here's the, way I, here's the way I understand this, God oftentimes gives us over to those things that we choose. Not because he, not because he wants to, he desires we're with him, but he loves us enough to make that choice, to continue to live with death, if that's really what you want. He's not going to come and beat you over the head and drag you into the kingdom of God. You have to willingly receive it and walk volitionally, walk your own choice into that. Yeah, I love that picture of Jesus uh, from Revelation chapter 3. Here I stand at the door and knock. And do you ever see the picture of that? It's like there's no doorknob on the outside, and he's knocking. The only doorknob in that picture is on the inside. And the people inside hear the knock. He's not going to bust that door in. He's not going to kick it in. He's not going to get the SWAT team to come and knock your door down, or his angel team, whatever. He's not going to do that because he's a gentleman and he's the one who loves you and he loves you enough to allow you to make your own choices. And he willingly says, come on, I want you to walk with me. And you know, the interesting thing is Jesus wanted these two to walk with him and instead he knew they were dejected. And he's like, all right, fine. I'll walk with them for a little while. And some of you out there right now are walking this road of death dejected, frustrated, maybe it's a... You know, we live in a world that is surrounded by the residue of death. The pandemic, the racial tensions, the political scene, everything you see here on the news, does it make you happy? Does it lift your spirits? No, it shows you the condition of our world in full reality sometimes twisted reality, depending on what you see. And you have to say, is this what life is about? And if your hope is in this world, yeah, you get the results of what this world has to offer, which is sin and death. But there is the author of life who came to set captives free, not from physical issues, yes, that too, hear me out, but most importantly, from spiritual issues. Because God knows that this life is temporary. That God didn't create the world to live in a fallen state forever. That's why he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. Did you know that? He kicked them out. Yes, there was a punishment and a consequence of their behavior, but it was for their protection. Did you catch this? What else was in the garden that he said, if they eat of it, then they'll continue to perpetually live in sin and death? The tree of life. And so as a means of protection, his punishment covered them and protected them. So that eventually there would be an end to this thing we call sin and death. And this is where this great redemptive story comes into play from the beginning to the end. And God's glory is shown throughout human history if somebody is willing to see it. But many of us are blind to see the truth of the reality of God's amazing redemption story. 
that starts all the way at the beginning of time, making everything good. We make it bad, and then he works to try to make it good again, realizing that he can't make it good through us, so he's going to do it himself. And this Jesus who comes and hangs on a cross says, it is finished, as his last words. What's finished? Surely, if Jesus was as famous as he was as those two claimed him to be, people would have heard, it is finished. The crowds around that day, the, and that would have rippled out throughout the rest of the crowd. He said, it's finished. He said, what does that mean? He said, it's fin-. What's finished? The curse of sin is done through his death on the cross. But there's more. You see, the grief over Jesus' death turned to joy at his revealing. Because something substantial happened in that moment. When something like scales fell from their eyes, they're standing there, or sitting there, reclining at the table. Jesus has broken the bread. Most scholars don't believe that these two were at the Last Supper when he broke the bread, that it was only the twelve. And so they wouldn't have remembered that, that Last Supper moment. But there's something in the moment of them of him breaking the bread and blessing it, that in that moment, for whatever reason, maybe they did see the scars when he broke the bread at that point. We just don't know. But then they saw him for who he really was. And they were overtaken with joy. They were surprised by joy. There's something remarkable about the way Jesus reveals himself to people. Everyone who has ever come to him in faith has seen him in a way that is specifically unique to him, them. And I'm not talking about through other religions. Don't go off on a tangent or mishear me. I'm not saying, oh, they found him through Hinduism. No, they found him by his revealing himself to them in situations, circumstances, or whatever may be. He reveals himself even in Muslim countries where no Christian word can get in there through visions and dreams. And there are testimonies even of people like that have said, I've seen this man in light, and he says he's the son of God. He keeps coming back to me every night in dreams, and I keep realizing that there's something different about him that is not the way it is in my own religion. See, Jesus will appear and doesn't need our help to evangelize the world. We think, well, God, you need us. You need an evangelism program at your church. You know what? Jesus doesn't need us. I, I, I hate to spoil your fun or your expectations of God, and it sounds very disheartening when I say Jesus doesn't need you, but he wants you. And that's the difference. If you ever, you, you know you need food and water to survive. You need it, right? But aren't there those things that you just really want? That you know, that you know you really want? See, Jesus really wants you. You're a bad habit for him. Think about it. Think about it, because when you read the book of Hosea, the minor prophet, He gives us a very clear picture about who we are contrasted to who he is. We're like the prostitute in the story. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of his glorious standard. 
But he keeps coming back into the highways and the byways, if you will, to find us and bring us back home. He pays, Do you know in the story with Hosea and Gomer, God tells Hosea, go out and buy her back. I taught this to my eighth graders a couple weeks ago, and they're like, why did he have to buy her back? Was she a slave? She'd sold herself into slavery. Sex slavery, that's the whole point of this. She was selling herself to men, and in order to pay herself off to men, she would do what prostitutes do. And so God tells Hosea, go get her. Pay for her and bring her home. You see, God's wanting to reveal something significant to us. We go to places where death lives, and he comes to places where death is to restore life. He wants to reveal himself to you this morning. And I know some of you are here. He's revealed himself to you, and you're living squarely in his will. But some of you have been teetering on this fence. You're living a life of sin. You're, You're living with the residue of death on your life. And you may think, well, it's not hurting anybody else. Well, if you want to live the way the world lives, then you'll get the benefit of what the world has to offer, and it's always death. But if you want to live with the benefit of eternal life through Christ Jesus, you have to give up the old ways of doing things. You have to get rid of death. You need to become a new creation through Christ Jesus. The old needs to be gone. The new needs to come. And you don't need to go back to the pig pen of death again. You see, these two that have been living with the the, the residue of death on their lives, once once they saw Jesus for who he really was and realized that life had been there the whole time, they had a nudging in their heart that something was different on the road. They saw a pinprick of light in what he was saying, but they didn't get the full reveal until they faced him at the dinner table. It's the difference between walking beside somebody and talking and sitting down face to face and looking them in the eye. Because now you are forced to look into the eyes of the one who's been talking to you that stirred your heart and he wants to pull that veil back to show you who he is. He wants to show you that he is the true life that has come to set you free. Let me tell you this, he didn't come to set you free from your current circumstances. He came to set you free from the circumstances that bring you low. He may not fix every physical problem in your life. And any preacher that tells you otherwise is a liar. And I know that's a bold statement to say this morning. But if you've heard it said, if you come to Jesus, then you'll be healed and you'll get finances uh, in order and da-da-da-da-da. You won't have this problem or that problem. That is a lie straight from hell that tries to keep people stuck in death. Jesus came to set you free from sin and death and to help you through your circumstances. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have to have this mentality. I love this story. We'll preach on it again some other time. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue when everybody else was doing it. They got called out. They stood before Nebuchadnezzar, and he's saying, why won't you bow to my statue? And what do they say? We only bow to one king, and it's not you. Well, I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. I mean, that, that was their torture for the day, I guess, in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, and 
They said, so be it. Whatever you think's right. But we believe our God is able to rescue us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to your statue. See, that's how you break the bond of death over your life today. Jesus is capable of healing me from cancer, but even if he doesn't, for whatever reason that is, I will still praise him and serve him to my dying breath. Jesus is able to heal my marriage, but even if it doesn't heal, he will see me through this, and I will come out on the other side as glorious child of God. He will take me through the rigors of overcoming this addiction. He will take me through this, but sometimes the journey's hard. Matthew chapter 7, the way, the way to death is this wide, narrow road. And a lot of people choose that. Well, what did Jesus say? The way to eternal life? Very narrow. And the gate itself is narrow. Why is he making it so hard on us? He's just telling you the truth of the matter. It's not that he is making it hard. He's just telling you, I promise you, I'll be there right with you. But this is a harder path, okay? That's just the nature of truth. Truth reveals what is true. And the truth is, to get to Jesus, it's a narrow way. But he made a way for you through that wilderness. And when you get bruised and banged up and scarred up from going that route, he's still your Savior. And the end result is eternal life, where there is no tear, sorrow, death, pain, disease. As our worship team comes forward today, I don't know where this message has hit you. I don't know if you're like the two on the way to Emmaus this morning, and you're, you're living under the burden of the residue of death. But you can be set free. We, but Brandon, I am a believer in Christ. Yeah, but, but you're living like death. These two were followers of Christ. And they lived with a residue of death. I see way too many believers in Christ who walk around like death is their best friend. Ladies and gentlemen, it should not be so with us. And those of you that are here that may be exploring what this life in Christ is about or whether or not there is a God, I promise you there is. And the worst time to find out about that is when you die. I'm serious. If you don't know him before you die, there's no other chance. And this is not a hellfire and brimstone sermon. I'm not trying to scare you to death. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. I want to scare you to life. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Those of you at home, a drum just snapped like it was a joke. What a way to end. Sorry, Ricky. You're red. That was pretty funny. No, seriously, it is no joke. God loves you. He's done everything he can for you, but you have to walk in the way that he gives. If you need prayer, there are people that will pray with you. You can come to my right. There's an altar up here. We don't sacrifice animals on it. <laughs> we sacrifice our burdens. We sacrifice sin and death 
at this place. See, Jesus was a once and for all sacrifice who gave his life for you and rose from the grave so that you could have life everlasting. Now it's our turn to come and give him our lives. And if you want somebody to pray, you don't know how to do this thing called faith or believing in Jesus, but you want to, there will be people that will come up here and pray with you. If you want to pray for somebody you know that is lost, that doesn't know Jesus, but they need to get outside of death and begin to live eternal life, come and pray for them. We'll pray for you here. If you don't want to be messed with, we call this our social distancing altar. You can come over here and space yourselves out. You can pray across the front of these steps here and nobody's going to bother you. You can reconcile yourself with God in whatever way you want to. You can pray about whatever you want to. But my, my plea for you this morning is don't leave without making a decision for yes or no, one way or the other. Heavenly Father, we love you. And God, there's so much to the mystery of who you are that we can't explain or understand, but you've given us enough of yourself to know truth from falsehoods, to know life from death. And I pray in this moment, in this holy moment, that your Holy Spirit will be such a sweet aroma in this atmosphere that lives would be transformed for your glory. Thank you for Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for the cross and the empty tomb. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.